0: Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on, and a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on, and a weekly podcast about... Oh, and being stuck in a loop. I'm
1: Joe Simpson. (laughs) And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How you doing?
0: Oh, pretty good. Happy uh, Project Update anniversary. Yeah? Yeah. We released our first episode on July 1st last year, and... That was a couple of days ago in terms of anniversary time. But yeah,
1: I guess we've been doing this a year. Awesome. Feels feels like longer.
0: I don't know what you're supposed to get me for podcast anniversary, but I didn't get it, so I didn't well, get you anything in return.
1: Well, I you just told me about the anniversary. Like I I don't pay attention to these things. We'll we'll figure something out.
0: Mm-hmm. Anyway, what are you working on?
1: Uh lots and lots of FM comparison. Um, probably some of the... I can relate to that. <laughs> probably some of the most productive time I've had since I started the project, which is awesome because oh. I love being really productive. Turns out that um, deleting Twitter and Facebook from my phone not just saves me the time that I spent on Twitter and Facebook, but the mental effort oh, yeah. that got spent after i was on twitter and facebook thinking about the things that i saw on twitter and facebook mm-hmm. so delete that and suddenly i just become way more productive and so that stuff's gone nice um started with um a weird problem with linking the file metadata so in the xml there's a big chunk of data that has kind of top level information it's the, the file options information from your filemaker database And unlike every other object in this XML, it doesn't have a UUID, a FileMaker ID, or even an object name. There's just a node for file metadata. And there was no code that could find a way to link these two things. Hmm. As a matter of fact, all the code explicitly skipped things that couldn't be linked in that way. And so... um, yeah, I had to just write some weird code for handling this one special case, which was kind of fun. It's like, okay, do we have file metadata over here? Do we have file ma- metadata over there? Link them. That's, yeah, that's it. I
0: mean, it makes sense from filemaker's perspective when they're not they're not building you XML for diffing. They're right. building XML for their purposes, and it makes sense that we have file metadata as a basically a giant singleton. There there doesn't need to be multiples. Yeah. Or any way to identify it, because there's only there's not one of these. There is just the file metadata.
1: And the other way of thinking of it is the um file metadata isn't its own node. It's actually a child of the whole database itself. Mm-hmm. And so if I told those nodes to grab their UUID, file name and file maker ID out of the database itself, they might have linked up. Naturally, But then I would have had to omit that metadata out later for display. It was just a pain. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that's working now. It's happy. Yay. Um, we do still have to work on changing the display for that one. Mm-hmm. Because clicking on file metadata then takes you to the result list of edited file metadata items, which always has one item. And it's mm-hmm. always been edited. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, then dug into big nasty mess of script diffing. Ugh. <laughs> There's just so much there. Yeah. Um, I dug out some code that I had used in FM Perception that did generic diffing. Um, just you hand it two lists of strings and it identifies the changes between them. What's cool about this is that this is different than the code that you're using in the UI to highlight changes between two nodes because mine actually takes a list of strings, not a return delimited string, Mm -hmm. which means that my individual elements in that list can contain returns. So I can just throw it... A paragraph of text and say, this is one element. Compare it to the other multi lined elements, um, which made diffing CSS easier and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I've got this generic code that just diffs a table of strings. And then I'm using that in multiple places now where I have to write the custom code that says okay now that you've found the differences what do we do with it how do we generate display elements out of this and what actually are the lines that we're going to display in comparison fm perception when it was doing its diffing only displayed things that had changed when it was looking at script steps so anything that hadn't changed would just get thrown away because it wasn't part of the report in FM comparison, we're showing the complete script and then highlighting the lines that have changed or been moved on either side of the list. Um, so, yeah, it's that code ends up being usage-specific. So lots of good shared code. Love that. And then to get it to, to, to display, I needed to start outputting the the parameters of the script steps, which in some ways is way easier than it was on the classic DDR. The classic DDR treated each script step as this unique bespoke item. And so every script steps XML would, at least in many cases, substantively differ from other script steps even if they were similar. And so there was a lot of work there and you had to say, okay, if you're in this kind of script step, then these are the things that you look for. And this is what you do with them. But if you're in this script step, you do this. And so that ends up being a almost 200 case switch statement. (laughs) And yeah, it really is one gigantic switch statement in the new XML. They stored each parameter that the script step takes in a parameter node. And so within each script step is zero to 10 parameter nodes. And those parameters have types. And there's 80 different types of parameters, which sounds like a pain, but 80 is way less than 200. And so I can just tell it, oh, you found this kind of parameter? Spit it out this way. And it just runs through the things. And the cool part here is, A, I don't have to tell it for each script step which parameters to expect. It just Mm -hmm. gets a list of parameters and outputs them according to the rule for that parameter. But the second thing that's really cool about this is it means as new versions of FileMaker come out and new script steps, if they add parameters that already exist, FM comparison will just handle it without a code change. You mean mm-hmm. add script steps? Yes. That, aren't,
0: that use the same parameters.
1: Yes. What did I say?
0: I don't
1: know. <laughs> um, so yeah, script steps that would use the same parameters will just automatically be supported. I only have to add code, not when they add new script steps, but when they add new parameter types. Mm-hmm. So that's also awesome. Um, so can you oh, give yeah. us a couple of examples of the parameters? Uh, a parameter would be like um, a target field. Okay. You know, so for the set field script step, might have a target field parameter. I think it's just called target. But that same parameter might be used on the copy script step because you mm-hmm. have the option of targeting a specific field. Also in paste, set field by name doesn't use the target parameter, it uses a different thing that generates a calculation. Um, the calculation parameter is used in a lot of different places.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there one calculation or are there lots of different variants on that?
1: I think there's variants. Um, I'm still working my way through them. There's 80 of them. So I don't know. I I, I built a giant FileMaker database, started with one that had Scripts that contained every single script step. Mm-hmm. And then in the altered version of it, added every parameter I possibly could to every single one of those script steps. So it's not a functional script, but it's just there to provide me script steps that run through every possible variation. Mm-hmm. And then I took all that XML and ended up dumping it into another FileMaker database that would break it down by which parameters existed. So for every script step, I have every kind of parameter that it takes with examples of each one. And then I've got those then grouped by parameter type. And I can then run through those and say, okay, this particular parameter type has three variants. Here's how you identify the variants. And then here's how you parse each of those variants.
0: Can you use that? list of parameters in that database to maybe pivot that out to a table with unique values and use that to build your switch statement in code so you don't actually have to write all of that
1: uh i probably could that's it, as i'm building each or support for each parameter type i'm adding the case for that one so it's it's a tiny bit of effort distributed many times rather than just sitting down and writing the 80 statements Hmm. the other reason that i don't necessarily want to jump ahead and write that code automatically is some of the parameter types are very similar Hmm. so something like target field might also be almost exactly the same kind of parameter as field ref yeah which might be the same as source field, but they made a different type so they could understand that it was being used differently within that script step, but it's not actually a different parameter type.
0: Yeah, they're using it differently, but you're still, for your purposes, going to be displaying it the same way.
1: Yes. So I'm not yet at the point where I want to kind of automatedly create this code. I'll settle for automated analysis (laughs) and then letting that feed me what really needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, that was a lot of fun to play with. Uh, And after that got into script and layout organization. So in the FM comparison interface, we differentiate between edits to scripts and edits to the order of scripts in the script list what folders they're in, what the hierarchy is, that kind of thing. And so those are two different interfaces, one for making changes to scripts and the other for reorganizing scripts. And scripts and layouts have basically the same structural thing. So I'm working on both of those simultaneously. And it basically uses that same generic code for diffing the list of items. And then handles what to do with that data a little differently. Um, It needs some more work, almost certainly. I've got good results happening and they look kind of close, but it's looking at a humongous chunk of JSON and trying to make sure that the JSON that's spitting out is actually saying the things that I want it to. So I need to mock up an interface so that i can actually see that data in kind of a tabular format and then i'll be able to tell if it's doing everything i want it to do in exactly the way i want with the manufactured test data that i produced that runs through every possible variation of messing up that hierarchy somehow like a folder within a folder within a folder that contains a script that then has a separator that then drops back down three layers because all of those folders closed (laughs) Like, I would never do that in my script organization, but somebody's going to do it. Mm -hmm. Actually, I just thought of another test case that I need to do there is we need to do one that has like 12 folders (laughs) and see what happens when that hierarchy gets too deep. Just for display purposes for our FM comparison.
0: I wonder if FileMaker has a limit to folders.
1: There's an outstanding question there that we've got to tackle at some point and I don't need any kind of answer from you right now, but if you have ideas, we can talk about it. There is some script-level metadata that FileMaker reflects in its organization interface. Like, whether this script appears in the drop-down list, whether this script runs with full access privileges, whether this script uh, uh, enables Siri integration, those things have indicators in the organization interface in FileMaker, mm-hmm. do we want those to be visible in our script organization interface?
0: Probably, yeah. The users used to seeing them in FileMaker.
1: Yeah, I mean we're already handling them at the script level, but I I prepped for us to do it at the script organization level. I just. We need to do a little bit more work to support it, but yeah, yeah, I was inclined the same way. It'll look really cool when we get it done. Mm-hmm. I'm sure when you're done making it look fantabulous mm-hmm. um, i uh and then kind of simpler bits i I added a truthiness filter to file maker boolean values, oh yeah, um. It's like, if something is true, it is true. If it's anything else, it's false. And the reason for that is that, A, sometimes the result spits back a blank. Sometimes the result might spit back a null. Sometimes we get the actual word false, and sometimes we get the word
0: true. Yeah, I'm, I'm relatively new to programming, but I'm pretty sure a Boolean should have... Two
1: states. (laughs) It really shouldn't have four. Well, but as a database designer, you know that if you have something like a checkbox, you can't tell the difference between I never entered any value and I wanted this to be off.
0: Yeah, but that's because FileMaker doesn't have the concept of bools in the database schema. Hmm. We, We just mimic that with you know, a text field or a number field with an X or a one.
1: It, in a lot of cases, it's functionally the same problem mm-hmm. where if FileMaker for a particular property sees a false, sometimes in the XML, they just don't export the property. And so when I go looking for that specific property and I find nothing, I'll get back either an empty string or a null, depending upon which code I'm using to ask the question.
0: Like there. Like In Swift, you can actually make an optional bool, and I want to make a little (laughs) Mac utility that will slap the user when they do that.
1: Nice. Um, Although an optional bool is kind of the perfect answer. It's the (laughs) three-state bool. I love it, Joe. I I don't understand what your problem is. I hate it so much. (laughs) Um. And then I had to completely rewrite the developer logging system for FM comparison. Um. I, 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 for the beta purposes, at least, I really wanted to be able to tell if somebody had a problem, if somebody had a crash, some of the crash reporting is a little thin using these cross-platform tools. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to get as much information as I could from a user over what the application was doing at the time when it bumped into a problem, either a stall or a crash or something that otherwise didn't generate any kind of result. And the problem is that all of the tools that are built in for doing that kind of stuff, just log it to a console somewhere. And a, it's a pain to hunt down and B it's not always there. There were some weird behaviors between Mac and like Mac OS hides application specific logging in a different place. Every single OS version, I can't figure out why they do it. And I've had difficulty finding it in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Um, So ended up writing just a little library that knows how to write log statements to the desktop in a big text file. And then rewrote all of my developer logging to dump to there. And it's awesome.
0: (laughs) And it clears out my console log because I'm out here. I'm the old man coming out on this porch, shaking my fist at the neighborhood kids for leaving stuff (laughs) in my console log in the browser.
1: Uh, I haven't touched that side.
0: No, but towards the beginning of the project, there were hundreds or thousands of things printing there. I'm like, I can't find the one thing I'm trying to
1: debug. (laughs) One of the things that I would like to do is give you a message you can pass to the back end that just says, add this to your log Mm -hmm. so that we can get things, not even so much like data, but stuff like the user clicked this button in the UI. And then right after that, you'll see a line that says, and the back end picked it up and ran with it. Mm -hmm. So we could see if somebody presses a button, but the back end doesn't respond. That would be fantastic when we can't get on the user's machine. This is, however, the first time that I've actually had a big text log available in a desktop file without substantive user interaction. And as I started looking at it and playing with it and looking at the formatting and things, I was like, I, at this point, I can do uh, debug logging in Markdown mm-hmm. with like styles and section breaks and, and bullet points. And oh, wow. So yeah. I still haven't done it.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can, but should you? I... Mainly because I, I think there's, isn't there kind of like a universal logging syntax already? Is there? Like when, when FileMaker's server generates a log and I open it, it opens in like console.app.
1: Hmm. So I think like, that's just because that's what's supposed to open .log. Yeah. They're just return delimited text files.
0: But I think they're also tab delimited. Okay. And they kind of show up as little tables when you open them like that.
1: Yeah. If I... <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. The markdown just sounds hot.
0: Yeah, if you want the if you want users to be able to open them in an editor and look for something before they send it to you, then it would make sense. But be beware that not everybody has a markdown um, editor on their computer, so make the file extension still be text, but you can still write <coughs> markdown syntax. So don't make it a yeah. .md file.
1: No, no. Aside from that, basically just kind of trying to gear up for beta. Um, the first beta for FM comparison is going to end up being Geist internal, mm-hmm. so we'll get the code in the hands of some people who are doing FileMaker development all day, rather than .NET and JavaScript development all day and testing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. The t- second. T- along
0: that line, briefly, a little digression. There was some stuff I wanted to generate some sample data for last week, and. I decided I'm gonna do this little side project in a filemaker database, so I can generate a bunch of changes, so that I'll have sample data to work with, as I'm working on this this part of the UI. So I go and do a bunch of stuff. Actually, the uh, little time tracking app that I built at the beginning of the year, uh-huh. I built that in Swift UI. So I decided to rebuild that in my little archives <laughs> database, and because uh, I just wasn't really doing much, you know, I thought about building it in Swift UI to maybe turn it into a product, but I just don't think anybody else is interested in time tracking that way. So I, you know, wrote out a little punch list, spent about three hours re-implementing it in FileMaker. It was relatively easy, but by the time I was done, I I wrote a little script that would just save a copy of the XML every time I pushed a a keyboard shortcut. So as I'm working, every couple of minutes, I'm just generating another XML thing. So I ended up with nine of them, I think. Mm -hmm. And... I ran various permutations of differing. you know, the first one with the last one and kind of just different combinations of them. As a developer, I don't make changes. All I do is <laughs> add and delete stuff. And I never really knew that, but I, I don't edit anything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's bizarre. but Yeah, it, it turns out that that getting good test data for diffing that explores all the various options is very hard to do organically. Mm-hmm. You, you really have to manufacture it. Yeah. And I've actually come up with a, a pretty good, I think technique for generating this test data about making a file that has a bunch of sample objects, say uh, custom functions, mm-hmm. and then actually naming the custom functions as a comment for what I'm going to do to them in the next version. So I kind of lay out the test plan, then dupe that file, make all the changes that are described in that thing. You know, it'll actually say like, add a custom function after this one. And so I'll make a new custom function after it called, this is the new one I added. (laughs) And then when you open those up and compare them, you can kind of see the map of how everything happened and where the changes occurred and make sure that it's covering all the stuff you expected it to. And you can make one of these things in about five minutes that torture tests a particular section of the system. Mm -hmm. So, A, that's become easy. B, that means I've made eight of these so far. Mm -hmm. There's going to be another 20.
0: Yeah. And the the good thing about the unique naming of them is... You can just throw them on all, all the XML files in the same folder and browse for them that way rather than saying trying to remember what does the project's database have the calculation stuff or
1: yeah wh- where was the good data? place for testing script organization? yeah, it's the script organization test XML file and the script organization test modified xML file yeah
0: that's way better than <clears throat> trying to remember which database. <laughs>
1: So, yeah, the second beta for FM Comparison will go out to the FM Perception licensees. And we're still targeting DevCon to get that out. When is that? Um, I, that's a fascinating question. I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Um, it's, it's like four or five weeks from now. Okay. It's soon. Um... Yeah. And so as part of that, started fleshing out the registration screen, making that be able to display information about even though you register FM comparison by registering FM perception on that machine, you, we still need a way to see that and click a button that files a support request that says that like this registration isn't working, what's going on, that kind of thing. All of that's in there. Um, Definitely need some work. It's it's just the skeleton and the structure really yeah. wiring it in still has to come. And we've got to answer one big question there on these kind of sub-windows, which is when I say, when I click the menu option that says, show me the registration information, is that going to push a view onto the stack or is that going to open in a whole new window?
0: I think for the most part, it's going to push a view onto the stack and then allow allow us to go back. So um, that we can kind of play with versions of that. It just depends whether or not, like, I, you can make the case for both. Like registration yeah. has no impact whatsoever on a user session, but settings could. And do we want to build a setting screen that modifies our existing window? Or, yeah, it, we can... That's definitely a bigger conversation to have. We need to kind of <laughs> think through what lives in there. But my my inclination is to say that we push onto the existing application stack, so that we have the option of modifying our existing app state from there, but don't necessarily have to. Whereas doing it in a separate window, the the windows essentially know nothing about one another. The way that you've got it set up now, so like. I could be halfway through a diff and analyzing bunch of data in a window, open a new window and change a setting, like, you know, enable dark mode, but dark mode's not enabled. Like, that's a different, you know, Vuex state tree in yeah. another window.
1: The good news is we've got the back end to pass those messages if we want to do setting change broadcasting across multiple mm-hmm. windows or app sessions. Yeah. But... Yeah, we've got to answer that.
0: So another question about the beta. Will yeah. will the betas have auto-updating stuff?
1: Yes. When can I, I just... have auto-updating stuff? Is the real question. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I'm... we'll see, that, that's technically an alpha feature. Mm-hmm. So um, it'll have to happen before the beta. Um, I've had it for every version of FM Perception, even the... 30 versions that came out before it released. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll do the same thing with this. I just, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't have it yet. Um, one of the things in, on the windows installer maker that I've got, it really likes complete paths to all the items. Mm -hmm. You know, here's all the items that you have to bundle up. And then here's where you put them when you do the install. And I need to look into their code to find out how to deal with, um, saying, I don't care what's in this folder, grab this folder and move it. Because right now our JavaScript build process can make files with different names. The names can change over time and we just all that we care about is index.html Right here is right here and everything else can be whatever it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Node took care of that for us. Um, so yeah, I've got a figure out how to do that. Um, the cool part, probably the thing that makes me happiest about all of this work and all of the testing that we did during this time is my single most concerning bug has been fixed. This was, this,
0: this was this definitely was, my fault.
1: <laughs> this was definitely keeping me up nights. I'm
0: not sure how it's my fault, but I recognize but, that it was my fault.
1: Um, FM Comparison runs great and very, very stably on my iMac, my laptop, and my Mac Mini. And not and so much on my they're Mac. They're running different operating systems. It was all great, and it crashed every single time consistently on Joe's laptop. Mm-hmm.
0: So I've been working for the last couple of months mostly on a Windows machine and only occasionally installing the latest Mac version to do a quick test. And I did one of those last week, actually about a week ago, uh, you know, towards, towards the beginning of the week. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to do some testing on the Mac to see how things look. Maybe write some code over here. And uh, FM perception. First, we couldn't even get it to open, um, which was odd. Like there was basically Mac OS is saying the the file was damaged and could not be opened. I, I should, in fact, move it to the trash. Like very opinionated dialogue. Like, It's a little overreach as far as I'm concerned, Mac OS, but- Kill it, kill it with fire. Yeah. So Dave finally gave me an unsigned version, which I was able to open, but uh, it was having trouble with the signed version. And then that seemed to have worked. And I swear I ran and used that one a couple of times that day. The next day, that same version, I could open the app, run a comparison, go to the diff view with the three column interface, the sidebar would load, but as soon as I clicked on the sidebar to go to, to load the item list, it would crash. And I could very briefly sure, see sure. it load the item list. So I knew that part was working. Like it would populate it with data before the crash. No crash log, no Mac OS uh, dialogue saying, hey, this app crashed, you know, that kind of thing. But it was just happening every single time. And we just could not figure it out and, you know, Dave's not seeing it on his end. I'm only seeing it on this computer. I didn't have another version of Mac OS running to test it on and just chaos. And now <laughs> I, I should mention this computer was having all kinds of bugs over the last month or so. Spotlight was effectively complete garbage. Um, it just stopped working, was returning utter nonsense the volume slider the actual percent indicated in the slider when you're moving it back and forth bore no resemblance or no relation to the volume on the machine <laughs> <laughs> like i don't even know how to explain it but like it would look like it was 40 percent, but i'd be hearing it 90 <clears> percent, <throat> or it, it was just all over the place so this thing was just i have no idea what happened to this my theory is maybe i just did way too many development environments on it because I've got the Xcode stuff, I've got all the Node stuff, lots of different editors there. I had at one point in the same week, set up all of the Android development stuff for Unreal Engine and all the Android development stuff for Unity and all the .NET stuff that goes with Unity and all the Visual Studio stuff that goes with C++, like all of the stuff just kind of jammed (laughs) into this one computer. And things got wonky. And uh, it was even so bad that when I went last week, I decided to basically declare Mac Mac bankruptcy and reformat the machine. And when I booted into recovery mode, I couldn't even select the disk during recovery mode, which was like, okay, this machine is just completely screwed up. The only thing that worked was booting into recovery mode and then using Disk Utility to just wipe the disk entirely and then reinstall macOS from there. And after that, everything seems to be working. Like it took me a couple of days to get the Mac set up again, but the first thing I did was get FM Comparison up and running to see, hey, does this work? And it, it does work. I can now go to the item list and go to the detail view. So fingers crossed, that was never an FM Comparison bug. <laughs> I have no idea what was going on with this Mac. and. uh I don't know. I, I kind of just don't trust it at all now. Like, I'm just now. I'm waiting for Apple to release a new Mac with a touchscreen or with anything else so I can just justify replacing it. <laughs> I just don't trust it <clears throat> at this point.
1: Well, the good news is we got logging to the desktop file out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was good. Yeah. So in the process of the last couple of weeks, I've been working on FM comparison a lot as well. I have had some other projects kind of finish up, so I've been able to focus more of my kind of background cognitive processing to FM comparison and made a ton of progress on the detail view. So it's kind of interesting that the update that Dave gave, I'm like two weeks behind on the feature set because I'm working on all of the stuff that he had generated the data for in the weeks prior to that. So today he talked about generating data for scripting and script and layout organization. I haven't even touched that
1: yet because I've been behind a couple of features. I got to be honest, Joe, it it feels really good. Yeah. For the first time since I brought you on this, I'm ahead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm not following along behind you, just fixing all the bugs that you've identified. I'm making stuff and making your life miserable, which is awesome.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not tapping my fingers (laughs) Like waiting for the thing that I need. So yeah, Uh it's definitely good. So I worked on the detail card, which is kind of the main meat of the app. So the sidebar and the item list are Chrome. It's it's navigation to get you to your data. But the detail is where all the diff data actually lives for a specific element. And we kind of abstracted it into a bunch of different display types where we can say like, We're comparing text, we're comparing numbers, we're comparing calculations or CSS or lists of items or bools or even timestamps. I think those were the seven.
1: And the images.
0: Images, yeah. I haven't done that one yet, which is why I keep forgetting it,
1: which is why I haven't done it yet. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I hope I wrote that down somewhere. I'll send you daily reminders. Nice.
0: So... You know, we're using something called JS Diff to do kind of color coding side-by-side comparison stuff and just coming up with different ways to compare two values. And for the, I've kind of mentally separated it into simple types and complex types. And simple types are like text where we're just comparing it using a word-based process or numbers where we're just comparing the entire value. Is this value different than this value? And highlight the difference. We don't need to like doing character or word diffing on a number. Just produces the wrong number. Like it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't show you the differences in the number. It just produces you a bad number. Um, same thing with bool. You don't want to do character recognition on a bool because you're just going to end up with a nine-letter concatenation of chaos. So the simple types. We're mostly just using word or value-based diffing. And the complex types, we, we may end up doing more, but for now we're doing line-based diffing. So a complex type would be like a FileMaker calculation that can have multiple lines of text. And for the time being, we're just doing a line-by-line comparison. We may actually mm-hmm. do another round of word-based diffing inside those lines later on. Um, it really just depends on performance. Like if we can do it without slamming the brakes on the app then it would be really cool and Mm -hmm. also coming up with a way to like how do you double highlight something how do you highlight something (laughs) that's already highlighted in a way that people can actually see and make sense of so that stuff has gone pretty well um i i kind of on purpose wrote this code badly because i i have a tendency well yeah i have a tendency to kind of overanalyze or over-structure code at the beginning. And I you know, I kind of wrote out the way that I thought this was code was going to be structured and then just kind of set it aside. Like, I just know for some reason this isn't right. And I just wrote basically copy and paste code to get a bunch of components into the app and get the stuff printing to the screen. And after working with it for a couple of days, I was able to kind of decide how to actually structure it and go back and refactor it. But Mm -hmm. I'm really really glad I didn't do my first idea because the way that I ended up structuring it was nothing like what I ended up with or what I had started with. So everything is working. Uh, There's a couple of little issues I've got to fix for Dave for like number formatting. So like there's a weird bug where I, if I'm receiving an empty value, I'm printing out a zero when I should just not be printing out anything at all, things like that. And then the other thing I want to figure out is the the function that you you pass in two values for a calculation, say, and it returns two values, and then I'm using basically two function calls, technically, they're a computed property in view, but i'm I'm calling that thing twice to get its named kind of result parameters out of it at the end. I think I need to change that because those two things aren't really in sync. I'm basically just, I'm only, I'm using one function because I didn't want to call the diff thing multiple times. So I kind of refactored that and got that in a working state where I only have to call it once, but I'm currently using basically two results to output two different things into two different divs that are side by side in the layout, but they, they're not related to one another. Mm-hmm. So, we end up with some diffs that look really good in an optimal situation. But with soft text wrapping, then things no longer line up in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I need to kind of rethink this this part this week where that the function that is outputting the color-coded lines for those two things, that needs to be outputting a single row with the objects inside it so they can kind of take advantage of the implicit sizing happening at the same time. I don't know if I explained that really badly, but I have an idea of what to do to solve it. I just haven't had a chance to do it. And I didn't have the idea until I stopped working on it. So it's one of those problems. So yeah, that's my FM comparison update. Um, the other thing that I want to start working on again is retrospective timelines, my iOS app, which, yeah. which I really haven't touched in a couple of months. I guess since about this time I started working on your project and then had a bunch of other consulting stuff. I kind of reached a point with Swift UI where it's like I've walked up to the edge of Swift UI over and over and over again and just got sick of bumping into the edges. So I decided to kind of put it on the back burner and wait for new features. WWDC was a couple weeks ago, like we talked about last episode. So I decided this is a good time to dive back in and kind of figure out what I want to do. And I spent this morning writing a a short blog post about basically the problems that the app has now and the stuff I had to do to kind of force it into a shippable state. with a big result of like kind of having a bad ipad app as a result of a lot of the stuff i had to do to get it working so i'm going to spend some time learning what's new in swift ui and seeing what of that stuff i can rip out and replace and i made a list this morning of like kind of the core problems and i don't know if any of them have solutions yet but i wanted to kind of identify them and rather than try to go through each of my complex view hierarchy now and try to fix this stuff in place, I'm gonna use SwiftUI to the advantage where the app has a single view at the top of the hierarchy. And I'm just gonna replace that view with something else and start a totally different code path. So make a new folder in Xcode in the same project and just have a different set of views named slightly differently so maybe you know new timeline list and new timeline details stuff like that for now and kind of replace them on on case by case basis where i can still very easily just swap back to the old hierarchy to see how a feature was implemented so yeah that's what i'm planning on doing i'm going to start with core data to see if there's a better way of implementing core data with swift ui than i have currently done and then I want to look at some of the new SwiftUI features for navigation and structure. Um, I think this is in SwiftUI, but I know there's something new in iOS and Mac OS called, uh, I think it's the Sidebar UI, menu component. But they've got a new set of APIs for dealing with kind of two and three column apps, which is what I wanted to do on the iPad, but there were so many bugs with navigation view in Swift UI on the iPad that I ended up making kind of a single stack navigation based thing. Um, so I wanna get the three column interface working. I want to replace a lot of my hacky toolbars with their new toolbar components. I wanna replace my little circular color picker. I have like a little grid of circles for colors and icon pickers. And I wanna replace that, they've got a new grid component and then one of the cooler things they added was lazy loading for vstacks and hstacks which was something we talked about last winter when i was working on the visual timelines vstacks H hstacks and zstacks load all of their content when they're referenced in a view so i couldn't I guess technically I could use them, but I couldn't in good conscience use them <laughs> when you could have you know, a staggering amount of data. But now that they, they can basically lazy load like a table view where they kind of preload as you're scrolling. So now I can kind of reuse those without having to rely on list, which is much more formatted than say a VStack. So yeah, I... Don't know if I can do any of this stuff, Um, but I want to spend some time identifying what I can do and then kind of making myself a punch list for the summer with the idea of shipping Retrospective Timelines 2.0 sometime this fall after iOS 14 ships. And at some point I had it in the back of my mind that I need to make a bunch of schema changes, More, more like a bunch of schema additions to my my Cloud kit back in, my core data back in. And I was gonna make myself do that first on the current shipping version before working on the beta. But I went to kind of write out what those changes are and I can't remember what I was gonna do that for. So I'm not gonna do that for now. <laughs> but I'm gonna do all this work on a branch of the project. And as long as I'm not making any core data changes, those branches will still be able to kind of merge back into the main branch and I can still work on you know separate code paths throughout the summer if I need to make an update to the current shipping version. but as soon as I make core data changes that affect my cloud kit schema then I then I'm in trouble like those things have to be reconciled in some way so yeah anyway that's my update on retrospective timelines I've got a lot to figure out. Got a lot of WWDC videos to watch and fingers crossed some documentation to read. I haven't actually, I haven't had the courage to go look at the documentation because it was so bad last year. People will say that it's better, and I just don't believe that yet. Like I've got to see it for myself, but I also just don't want to see it yet. Like I still want to believe there's good documentation, or at least that there is documentation. <laughs> And the last thing I want to talk about is I've been kind of stuck in a loop with some of the WebXR, WebVR stuff. And I'm hoping we can use this conversation to help me break out of that loop. But the loop is something, it's entirely of my own making. This is not a technical thing. This is Joe is being indecisive thing. Uh-huh. So I'm working with A-Frame. A-Frame is really cool. A-Frame is... You know, it's basically a bunch of HTML classes and HTML objects that you can use to define stuff. It's an abstraction layer sitting on top of 3.js. And then when you need to, you can drop down into 3.js to do more complex stuff. So I work with A-Frame a little bit. I'm like, wow, this is really cool, but I'm, you know, this HTML file is getting really crowded really quickly. So I'm gonna make a view project. And then I start working with A-Frame and Vue. These things work really well together. But for some reason, Vue and Webpack, whatever configuration I'm using of those things, cannot load my 3D models. So my OBJ files or my GLB files, these kind of universal standards for 3D models, Webpack just won't go get them for me during the live preview process or the build process. So when I do like npm run build, It just won't include them it'll include the references to them in the hrefs i can see the file path printed out but it won't actually get the files and put them into the resources like it does with images or audio or any other more common web file formats so then i get frustrated with that and i spend some time trying to figure out a solution to that problem that apparently nobody else has, because nobody else is working with these two bits of technology. <laughs> like, the, like I am the Venn diagram of A-Frame and view. Um, so, I, you know, I've had a question on Stack Overflow for a couple of months with lots of views and no answers, no comments, nothing. Um, I, I just cannot find an answer. It has something to do with Webpack, but I don't know how to tell Webpack to say, include this file type. Like I can't even figure out how to Google that because, Googling that just returns all kinds of garbage answers. But all I want to say is like when I, when I'm in Node, I've got this file format. I want this in my project, but I don't know how to, I don't know how to get that to happen in my project, and I don't know how to Google that apparently. So then I, I think back to something that I saw a couple months ago, which is Babylon JS, which like you know screw this. A-frame stuff. Screw this view stuff. I'm going to go work in Babylon.js. It's a whole game engine built in JavaScript. It's going to be awesome. I spend like 20 minutes looking at the documentation. I'm like, ah, I'm just not really ready to learn this yet. Let's go back to the <laughs> basics. So I go all the way back to the beginning. Like I'm just going to work in an HTML file with some A-frame and not have any of this view stuff. And then I end up with a complex file again and say, well, maybe I should kind of refactor this into some components. And before you know it, I'm in the same loop again. And I've gone through that like five times over the last two months.
1: Uh, (laughs) I'm laughing, but I've I've only done something almost exactly like that a couple dozen times in my career.
0: Mm -hmm. So part of the problem, I guess part of the reason why I keep looking at Vue is because... There are some projects that would really benefit from that level of structure. So I was trying to think there are two types of things I want to make in WebXR. And I really need to start thinking of these as separate goals. The first type of project is visual art, little jokes, you know, kind of visual puns and stuff like that, and just generally places to go. But these aren't things that provide functionality. These are simple scenes and demos where I want to throw, you know, show off some examples of something or just have a cool place to go and think, or, you know, a musical experience, things like that. Things that could live in a single file without a lot of abstraction. And then there's the more productive ideas where I want to load data from an API and build, you know, complex sci-fi like interfaces for how to deal with data in VR and AR. And those things require significantly more work because I need a backend for those. I need some kind of backend because um, I don't wanna just you know, connect to a, a server or an API in a JavaScript function that's gonna be running in the user's browser because then all those credentials are sitting in the user's browser. Sounds like a disaster. So I've got these two types of ideas. One of them benefits from abstraction and things like view. The other one, I'm probably fine just doing everything in the in the sloppy way. And I think I just need to put those productive ideas on the back burner for now and just focus on learning A-Frame and 3.js and or Babylon.js, but really just learning the tools and how to make stuff and then later on figure out the burden of the backend stuff and connecting to data sources, things like that. And then at that point, I can take a look at more of a, and architecture for these ideas but the way that I'm the the path that I've been on the last couple of weeks is basically doing nothing uh, like I, I keep going through that those, mm-hmm. those other four emotions and then just not even making anything at all so I want to kind of break out of that so I, I guess the point of this conversation is to say at least to try to put myself on the record with some accountability and say I'm going to put those data visualization and data interaction things on hold for now and just focus on the simpler stuff. So cool places to go, you know, short little game demos that don't require a ton of logic, visual puns and jokes and things like that. So that's the stuff I wanna work on over the, over the summer or however long it takes me to kind of wrap my head around writing WebXR stuff in general.
1: In general it sounds as though your A-frame 3JS with Vue thing works fine it's just the webpack process that doesn't. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not critical that you use webpack. You can use Vue without it.
0: Okay.
1: You you basically don't have a build process for your app. Have you ever seen the uh, a view tutorial that started without node that just had an HTML file that had a call out to the a script call to the view thing that's out on the internet and just said, go
0: yes and no, I guess <clears throat> I've seen stuff like that, but what I want to build, like I want Vuex and router and all of that stuff. I want, I want the whole application kind of state hierarchy and I don't know how to, I don't know if you can do that without actually building a project.
1: I I think you can. Um, let me dig around a little bit and see if I can find a, a decent example. Okay. Um, most of the simple tutorials don't get into the store and the router, but I'm pretty sure there's nothing in there that requires Webpack.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm totally happy to just offboard the entire uh, Joe's hobby project engineering. Framework to to Dave. (laughs) You build the foundation. The
1: the only downside to that is if, you know, when you put it up online, instead of loading three HTML and JavaScript files, they'll load 50. Yeah. But, you know, for initial startup, that's going to slow things down a little bit, but all those files are going to be really small. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, it's your, particularly for art joke scenes kind of stuff. That's that should be fine.
0: Yeah, because I need to load all the assets. It's going to take much longer to download a, a single three D model than all of the JavaScript.
1: <laughs> yeah, and they're going to have that problem anyway. You slice it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, let me see if I can find a, a decent example that that does some of that mm-hmm. and does it effectively, like the, the first one that I built didn't have any node integration whatsoever, but it didn't have the store and the router, but I'm pretty sure that's not a requirement. Okay. Um, I don't think that that's doing any substantive work. It's just merging all those files into one, doing some minification, stuff like that. So I don't I don't think that's critical.
0: Yeah, I'm totally fine with getting rid of the minification. Like I'd rather just have, I'd rather people be able to Right-click on it and say "Inspect Element" and actually be able to understand what that says, which with a Node project you can't. It's just yeah. a garbled mess. So if I can, if I can denotify the view structure, I'm all for that. That didn't even occur to me because I'm just kind of parroting what we're doing for FM comparison. Like that's kind of the extent of my view knowledge is like taking what I'm learning for FM comparison. and Like well, I'll try this over here. So yeah, yeah. this is this is why I brought it up because I obviously did not even consider stuff like that. Well, good.